I'd like to welcome you all to this evening's Tamas Academy lecture, um, which is presented tonight by Professor Keith Critchlow, who is the President Emeritus of the Tamas Academy. I'm very heartened to see so many people here. Um, it's, it, it's very often the case that Keith Critchlow attracts more people than there's room for. I've experienced this a few times in Oxford when we've invited him to speak in Oxford. Um, it's always difficult to hire a hall big enough. But anyway, I think people are drawn, uh, not just because he is such an eminent architect and geometer and educationalist and writer, but also because his talks are a celebration feels that they have this quality of celebration, they're not dry. But he speaks with a sort of infectious enthusiasm. And he's enthusiastic about things which are, are fraught with significance. And we feel he understands something that we also want to understand. He opens our eyes to things that we also want to see. <coughs> Keith himself is fond of quoting a passage from Plato's Republic where Plato explains that there's a faculty in the soul of each one of us which is worth more than 10,000 eyes because it's an organ of perception through which we become aware of an otherwise hidden order in nature a world of spiritual archetypes that underlies the forms of the natural world. To awaken this faculty in us, Plato recommends, amongst other things, that we practice geometry as an inner meditative discipline. This is something that Keith Critchlow has done diligently for a lifetime. And in his most recent book, The Hidden Geometry of Flowers, the fruits of this awakened <coughs> faculty of perception are presented to us. The world of flowers is revealed as a living exemplar of a realm of archetypal forms. So please, a warm welcome for but what I am going to do is I'm going to ask everybody to give one minute silence now. A very good way of reducing your expectations um, and ra raising your ability to, to hear. So can we have a minute silence, please? May we be guided by truth. May we have beauty revealed to us, and may the result be good. Here, which I'm going to duly use. And we can have the first slide on this side, please, Simon. And most people who know me and have attended my talks before know that I habitually start with an image of the sun. And I'm quite concerned for everybody to give a little bit of time and consideration as to this extraordinary question, 
Where is the sun? Where is the sun in you? Is it on a screen in the Art Workers Guild? Is it in your mind? Is it in your eye? Is it in the natural world? Or is it in all of these things? The sun is the most incredible, penetrating and powerful symbol because it's a symbol of light. And coming to terms with it as the symbol of light and as light and consciousness are the ultimate reality as far as I'm concerned, the sun is the most powerful symbol. What we're looking at there is also a geometric shape which most people wouldn't find any difficulty with whatsoever. It is round, but it's right next to the horizon, which is anything but round. Although we're told at school that we're on a spherical Earth, there's absolutely no way anybody can perceive a spherical Earth unless they're unfortunate enough to be sent up in a rocket or something and see the Earth from way out, and I shall be showing a couple of shots of that. But what, what Proclus said, and Proclus was such an important commentator, the most important commentator on the Platonic school, he said, the things of heaven, and the heavenly, and the intelligible are circular. The things of the earth are in straight lines. And that's an extremely interesting observation because what you're also looking at there is the divided line of Socrates between the ocean which is below, what you're looking at here is the ocean, and the heavens above. That dividing line is between that which seems and that which actually is. So let's have the next one on this. This is from Dear Plotinus, and it also carries a very interesting and provocative thought and message. Never did I see the sun unless it had first become sun-like. Now that might seem simple, it might seem trivial, but in fact, it's again another very deep statement. Plato had been ridiculed in modern times by saying a light came out of the human eye. But what I'm going to suggest to you in this room is that which comes out of the human eye is the intention to see. If you want to look at the screen, there is an intention coming from your eye to the screen. Now, if Plato chose to call that light, that's fine by me and it's fine by him. But he's been ridiculed by people saying, oh, there's no light coming out of the eye, all the light is coming from the sun. Well, we do have an inner light, and part of that inner light is our, our intention and attention. What do we want to look at? So, let's have the next one on the, over there, please, Simon. So the next thing is the moon. What does the moon mean to us? We've been so overwhelmed by imagery in modern times, not least from computers and television sets and mobile phones and goodness knows what. Not so many people even pay attention. I don't know how many people even are aware in this room, probably quite a few, I hope, what phase the moon is in at the moment. I'm not asking for anybody to jump up and tell me, but if they feel like they can. But we are no longer sensitive to where the moon actually is in terms of its cycle of 28 days. What you might be interested to know, if, you don't, if you're not, it doesn't matter to me, but this floor of this room rises by six foot 
and down again because of the pull of the moon. This is what has been calculated. The, actual, the, the Earth is a very sensitive liquid ball. Only the outer skin of the Earth, in fact the thickness of one's thumbnail compared to a football, is what is solid of the Earth, the mountains and things. Everything inside the Earth is liquid and is in convection currents. Now the Moon, when it's at a certain position, above wherever, it has a pulling factor on the Earth, and as I said before, any particular part of the surface goes up and down by six foot. We can't see it, we can't, we can't be aware of it, but these, um, if you're not sure what the Moon means to you, then you only have to remember that the human female fertility cycle is completely conducted by the Moon. It's a 28-day cycle. So, let's have the next one here. What is the human eye? What is your eye? What is your eye looking at? What does your eye do? Your eye is a liquid sphere. And Plato would tell you that the eye is the most precious thing that we were ever given. And the reason was, without the human eye, we'd never been able to see the universe, we'd never been able to uh, talk about things, and we would never have discovered philosophy, and therefore we would be incredibly blind. So the human eye is that which is looking at the sun, looking at the moon, and in the next slide, on the moon side, what do you see there? Now some people know what they're looking at there, I hope. That is the moon in front of the sun. Now if you don't find it miraculous that the moon is exactly the size of the sun, that's fine by me, but I'm afraid I do find it miraculous. In fact, I, f I find a total significance to A, the human eye, B, the human experience, and C, the reason why the ancients saw eight planets or, or experienced eight heavenly bodies. Of course we know there are more now. There are ten. We can go on to Uranus and Pluto and so forth. But according to the power of the human eye, there was a definite octave about the planetary system. And to me, the fact that when we look at the moon crossing the sun, they're exactly the same size, places to me a significance on our position in the whole universe. But that's maybe my luxury. Next one here. Plotinus also said something which is extremely valuable and particularly pertinent in our own times. This world is the first sanctuary. We have had the great good fortune of spiritually being pulled into form and shape by the archetypal intelligible world from the earth, air, fire and water of our planet and therefore we have been placed on this extraordinary thing called the Mother Earth and it is our first sanctuary and if we deal with it and treat it as a sanctuary we are at least honouring the very thing we should be doing. Next one over there. So here is an outer view of the planet. We are um, on England, as you can probably recognize England from this picture. Um, Europe is particularly clear of cloud cover at that moment. But um, 
looking at that, it's extremely interesting to make sort of quite simple observations that all the civilizations that have happened on the planet Earth have happened on the freezing line, which is in, certainly in the north anyway. The freezing line where human beings have been most challenged to be able to cope with very cold weather and very hot weather um, is where the civilizations, the band around the, the planet. Next one here. And this is using dear Krishnamurti to emphasize what I've been saying. You are the world and the world is you. Whatever damage you cause the world is damage to yourself. If only we could grasp that a little bit more closely and tightly and realize how we cannot afford to go on being as casual as we have been. We can't afford to go on hoping that somebody else's backyard will take our trash, as they say, and we're going to have to be a great deal of that. But the doctrine that you're the world and the world is you is a very ancient one. It's the doctrine of the microcosm and the mesocosm and the macrocosm. Next one over there. Next one here, please. This is a child's eye, and I'm going to read from Kathleen's poem here. Look, beloved child, into my eyes, and see there yourself, mirrored in that living water, from whose deep pools all images of earth are born. See in the gaze that holds you dear all that you were, are, and shall be forever. In recognition beyond time and seeming, Love knows the face that each soul turns towards heaven. Incredibly inspired poem by Kathleen, to whom we all honor. And I thought it would be a very appropriate to make a reminder of the relationship between the fact that most of us, if we um, pay attention, are using our eyes to look into the eyes of somebody else. Usually we have to be careful, depending how well we know that person. <laughs> But nevertheless, the more affectionate you are to somebody, the more you can look into their eyes. Next one. Next one here. Next one there. This is to make the point that I made earlier. This is the planet that we're on, Mother Earth, and the way in which the weather spirals are coming up from the South Pole, in that case. You can see Africa here. This is Africa here, and Europe is or above the top there. We are sitting in this position here. And one quite interesting and important discovery that's been made, I suppose, in recent times is that we're not outside the Earth at all. No, we're not outside the Sun, we're actually inside the Sun. The Earth is inside the Sun. And we, the normal octave, as I said before, starts here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The eighth one is the moon, which is going around the Earth here. These planets were beyond human naked eye vision. Therefore, they weren't taken into account. Now we know there are 10, but I think every day people are discovering more and more planets, and so who knows? Next one here. Next one there. 
This is our planet moving around the sun. This is a diagram of it. And what's interesting is, this is the sun which is um, literally unbelievably hot. It's a nuclear power plant going full toss. And the heat within here is so intense that it's not until we get to this area here, where the, as Rudolf Steiner made, made the point, where we get warmth. Warmth is miraculous in our solar system. Outside that, it gets into incredibly cold areas, so cold that even oxygen, the oxygen that's in this room, would freeze. What's interesting to me, and I have no evidence for it at the moment, but it looks very likely that the Earth is in a golden mean relationship between that which is far too hot and that which is far too cold. That's pure speculation not to be taken as a scientific statement. <laughs> this is um, a statement from the Holy Quran, and again, it's there to provoke thought and possibly experience. Have not those who have disbelieved known that the heavens and the earth were joined together in one united peace? Then we parted them, and we've made from water every living thing. Will they not then believe? Well, I was absolutely delighted a few minutes ago to go outside and have water fall on me because we're very, very short of water at the moment. And so this whole thing of life and water being absolutely integral, we've all become very aware of that because we're living in a drought. Even the bus stops around my part of the world have got, you are in drought. Please be cautious of your water. Water is an incredibly precious thing and I shall go on to that even more in a little minute. Next one here, over there. Although this man is a Hindu, and you can see that his sense of the value of water is intense, he's obviously held a handful of it and let it trickle out of his hand, and it's not difficult to place the ritual of christening a child in Christianity in a very similar position. You become a Christian by being taken through a procedure of water by the priest on your head and across and so forth. So the spiritual nature of water is well recognized and understood by nearly every religion. I'll come back to it again in the second half. Next one here. This is a, an example of the miraculousness of the Mother Earth. What you're looking at there is water in the three states of matter. That is, water as completely solid, these blocks of ice in here are completely solid. Water as liquid, as you can see, it's, it, the ocean is moving here. And water as vapor, water that's in the sky here. The water that's been taken up by the sun into the heavens. I don't know how many people have ever stopped and really appreciated, I'm sure Jeremy has, what a, how, what a weight and what an amazing thing a cloud is which is full of rain about to drop. The immense weight of that, how can it be up there in the, in, the, in the sky? We take it all for granted until suddenly we have a drought. Then luckily it rains on us. Anyway, next one over there. These. That is a tiny drop of water, a dew drop on a leaf. And what's interesting about it is that a tiny drop of water becomes spherical in exactly the same way as the water on the planet Earth is spherical. 
We live on planet water, really. We, I don't know why we call it planet Earth, but I mean, one does know why. But at the same time, huge percentage of the surface of the planet is water. Now, what's interesting is that little tiny drop is recapitulating the shape of the whole planet. It's become a sphere, or a hemisphere, or as near as it can. And if you ask somebody, why is that so, your, your science master at school will just brush it aside. Oh, it's called surface tension. Let's go on to the next subject. But I mean, you leave water alone, and it wants to be as flat as it can be, and as low as it can be, as Lao Tzu constantly saying. The greatest thing about water is that it always wants to take the most humble position and spread itself out. So what happens when you get a little tiny dewdrop? It suddenly becomes a sphere. Well, not only does that little drop become a sphere, next one here. Next one is we too, our very first experience as a human being is to be a spherical drop. I'm sorry to break this on you, everybody, but this is the truth. <laughs> we all start life as a sphere. But not only that, what's amazing about it is, look at the size of the contribution that the female makes, which is the egg here, and the amount and size that the male produces. Mind you, mind you, this is the only one that gets into the center of the egg and causes fertilization. There are many, many thousands of other would-be suitors <laughs> traveling around that egg earlier on. But nevertheless, this is our... And when I say this is our first experience, this comes from reading a book on biology where it said, the only way we can define life is that life can experience. I don't know, it's a very good definition, but nevertheless, it's the most extraordinary thing that our very first experience as a living creature Every one of us in this room has been in that state before getting to the multi-billion number of cells there are now sitting in a chair. Next one over there. There's a photograph of that beautiful golden cell, which is, a, it has this protective membrane around it as well, but that inner golden sphere there is you and I, um, if, you are, if you wish, at the point that you and I became fertilized and started the journey to become a multi-billion cell creature. Now, I'm going to make a big jump here now, and I'm going to ask a bit of indulgence. If that's our very first experience, then I'm going to propose to you that the image on this side is our possible last experience. Next one here. That is the Saint Kukai, great Japanese savior of the, Japanese faith, of, the, of the Buddhist faith, who came to China, received the esoteric traditions of China, went back to Japan and started um, monasteries to perpetuate Buddhism. But the artist who painted that, whether he could see it or not, and it's possible he could, was quite aware of the fact that our ultimate state before not needing to come back into incarnation again is probably a golden sphere as well. Next one over there, I think maybe we're on break time. No. So, what you're looking at there is very intriguing because this is called, in Arizona, where you find these things, it's called a sidewinder. It's a snake make its way across the sand. 
And for that snake to go forward in its serpentine form, which is the liquid form that all rivers chill, it has to push against these straight lines of the sand as it goes. It's the most extraordinary double act of living water in the creature itself and the straight lines of having to push itself to get going. So, come back to this statement again. Next one here. It's just a very good meditation to realize that you are water. Something like getting on for 80% of your human body is water. Liquid. Water, if you like. Next one over there. But it's not only the living movement of snake and the water, that is the movement of the wind and sand. Those are sand dunes. And they turn out to have the most extraordinarily similar curvatures and so forth. I was hoping to have an image of a, a river on that screen there, but I couldn't find one in time, but I was very glad to find that one. Next one here. So, we come back to our ancestry. Everybody in this room, their ancestry is earth or rock, if you like, water. These are the two visible, visible elements. Remember how important that is. And what we're looking through to see that rock and that water is air. It's like this room. If, if we could see air, none of you could see the screen. Do you realize how valuable and important that is? And then light is above air. Light is coming from the sky and lighting up all these things. We have the four elements. The two above are transparent and illuminative. The two below are tangible and sensorial. So here you have them. And then I've, next on this screen I've got a little, almost a jingo coming from um, ancient Hindustani verse. Spirit sleeps in the stone. This is considered to be asleep, the spirit here. It breathes in the plant. We haven't got plants here, but we have to take it. Plants breathe. We all know that plants breathe. It dreams in the animal. The most extraordinary thing about animals, particularly dogs, is we are aware, if you have a dog or an animal, that they do dream. We don't know what they dream, but they do. And finally, the fourth state awakens in man, meaning awakens in mankind. So those four states are, in a sense, um, reiteration of the four levels of human consciousness. You can be asleep, you can be in a state of breathing, you can be in a state of dreaming, and, or you can be awake. Next one here. And for those who are awake, I've used this dear girl in her very beautiful Hindustani costume. And I'm going to marry her with, if I may, next one over the other side. The choreography of a rose. If you look at a flower carefully over a period of time, you'll see it goes through a choreography extremely similarly as this girl is doing in her dance. Next one here. And this is just to reiterate what Krishnamurti said earlier, this is Shvala de Lubitsch speaking, we are a cosmos, the cosmos, 
There is nothing in the world which is not in us, either potentially or in actual fact. Now, of course, Sholo de Lubitsch is talking quite correctly about physical nature of things. In fact, very amusingly, I was looking at one of my astronomy books just last week, and for some extraordinary reason, the astronomer who wrote the book um, put the light um, ladder of a star next to the light ladder of our, our solar star and said, oh, look, there, you know, regard this, here are all the elements that we find on the planet Earth. This proves that the stars are not divine. I thought, wonderful logic. <laughs> What's wrong with Earth, air, fire and water and all the elements being divine to begin with? Anyway, we won't go into that. This poor man was very happy because he thought he proved there was no divinity in the stars. Next one over there. So, in a way, a summary, which um, is very simple if one sees it as a spiral. This is a galactic spiral, and you only have to look at one of your own fingerprints to find you might have exactly the same kind of spiral intimately on your body. Most people have them on the crown of their head, but it's, you see it very clearly in babies, not so clearly in older people. But a young baby has a most beautiful spiral at the top of the head. And usually that spiral's pointing to the North Pole. No, the North Star. <laughs> Steady on. Um, next one here. So if you find a similarity between that spiral, which is a galactic spiral, and incidentally, if that was our Milky Way, we are somewhere around here. Our sun would be somewhere around here. And again, this whole business of a golden mean from, the, from there to there and from there to the outer part of the galaxy, I think that's very likely to come up next with those who are hunting golden means at the moment. But here, Rose is doing exactly the same thing in its own way. Sometimes mathematically precisely the same thing, but not always. But there is a rose, and whenever you see a rose and it moves you, it's moving something much deeper in you than just being a flower. It's actually taking you through a mathematical experience, which may or may not need to be proven with equations and goodness knows what. The last one, no, sorry, not the last one. Um, this is from a very important agriculturist in America, a black agriculturist called Luther Burbank. He came to the most beautiful, simple conclusion. The truth is that life is not material and that the life stream is not a substance. Uh, it's, it's absolutely wonderful for me when somebody like a farmer comes to that conclusion. It's the kind of conclusion that dear Jeremy here might come to. <laughs> it's the kind of conclusion that Wendell Berry would probably come to. But I just want to finish and have a, we'll have a break, a 15-minute break. And the idea of having a 15-minute break is that there's a lot of lovely books here. This comes from a very ancient Chinese book, and it is called The Noble Ancestry of Water. I'm, I'm continuing my theme of water, and here we go. Formlessness is the first progenitor of form. Silence is the first ancestor of sound. The son of formlessness is light. Its, grandeur, its grandson is water. Everything that lives was produced from formlessness. Light can be seen but not grasped, 
Water can be handled but not violently compelled. Wherefore, among all things which endowed with form, there is none so noble as water. This is something which has come to me time and time again when I've been studying the flowers and doing the geometry of the flowers. Flowers are primarily the most extraordinary creatures because they are also, like ourselves, mostly made of water. Anyway, next one here, please. This is an image I took of a soap bubble. Now, children, luckily, are very taken with soap bubbles and they continue to be beautifully taken by soap bubbles. And I was very pleased when I took this image because I had put some washing up liquid into the water and sure enough it went into this pattern which is extremely similar to the patterns that the weather makes on the globe of the earth. But apart from that, when you blow a bubble, it geometrically it cuts the sphere exactly in half. It's a very curious thing. I'm thinking of dear man over there who's got some bubble pictures of mine. I've got to get them back one day. <laughs> anyway, next one over there. Please. I'm going to have to read this one because it is rather dark. This is again very important. The bubble is born in water and stays in water and is lost in water as water. The cosmos too is a bubble born in the absolute exists in the absolute and emerges in the absolute. Recognize this truth. As the bubble cannot be conceived without positing water, the cosmos cannot be conceived of without positing the absolute. A pretty powerful statement that, and um, again, it's to remind people very much of the extraordinary total pervasiveness of being and existence. Those are things that do need a lot of thinking about. Next one over there. Next one over there, please. So, so let's have the next one on here as well. There's another bubble, this time complete bubble. The garden reflected it. Thus everything is held fast in a close obscurity of harmonia a rounded sphere rejoicing in its circular stillness. Now I put that up there because it reminded me so much of His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales's book on harmony, of which one of the editors is sitting at the back there, quietly. And um, it's just a very, again, it does need thinking about, a statement like that does need thinking about, and it is slightly obscure, but nevertheless, it's a reminder that the totality of being and the totality of existence is spherical. Plato made a very interesting remark um, near the end of the Timaeus where he said, those who posit that there are more than one universe are people who have trouble with their mind. That's very fashionable at the moment to say, oh, there's lots of universes out there. But it's a total misuse of the word. Universe. Universe. There's only one universe, as Plato makes quite clear at the end of the Timaeus. Doesn't matter how many bits and pieces you want to find, either going smaller or going bigger, but it's still eventually one, only one thing. Next one here. That's the one that won't go, is it? <laughs> well, let's have the next one on that side, Simon. 
sorry. Now we do need the next one here because then it makes sense of this slide. The next one I'm going to show you is an image of the planet Earth. <clears throat> How many of you have seen the planet Earth looking like that? What I'm going to do, if I can find my amazing stick, those are the magnetic envelopes of the planet Earth. This is the planet Earth here. There it is. There's the spherical Earth. And here is the spherical moon and the, at its furthest distance from the spherical Earth. The Earth, because of the way the metal inside the Earth, and I said before it's a liquid sphere, as it's turning, it sends out these magnetic fields both ways. But because we're inside the Sun, and forgive me for putting these blue and white stripes on there, and it's nothing to do with the United States of America, forgive me, but this is the, being inside the Sun, and this is the um, magnetic field um, barrier between the Earth and the Sun, and pushes the Sun's rays aside, and these are the magnetic fields of the planet Earth. It's the most incredibly beautiful thing. There is a very beautiful book, actually, on the magnetic fields of the Earth, which you can get if you've got enough money. Quite expensive. But um, there it is. And on planet Earth is a membrane, a membrane which we call humanity. I'm using this image here to be an image of humanity. Um, this was taken in northern, northern Ghana when I was there, and we were received in slight amazement because we arrived in a car, and the only thing these people have here are bicycles. But the whole community here was quite staggering. There's a dog here. There are these wonderful creatures here, the goats and the chickens and the... Um, those, what are those kind of hens they call them? Guinea fowl, thank you. Anyway, very important to remember, again, we are the Earth and the Earth is us. There's nothing at all that we're made of, physically, which has not come from the green world, which in turn has come from the soil, which has come from Earth, air, fire and water. We are completely made of the planet Earth. What we are spiritually is something different. But these human beings in this small part of Africa are a very, very, very thin membrane. A membrane which is actually able to think, which is extraordinary. We are quite extraordinary. Biggest danger, of course, has been in recent times that people have tried to put human beings outside the planet as if we could do without it. In fact, I'm afraid I can remember the days of the 1950s, uh, there were statements being made by certain generals in the United States of America saying, we, we'll just move on to another planet if we mess this one up. Which is an incredible misunderstanding that we are the planet Earth, whether we like it or not. We're, we are here for a very, very good purpose, and this is the place where we've got to realize what we are, who we are, and why we're here. Next one here. So people like this, not these people because they're in Africa, but people in Southeast Asia for 3,000 years have been reaping the benefits of food without upsetting the environment at all. This is totally sustainable agriculture here. These are rice paddy fields which are balanced within a few inches of water. It's the most incredible thing when I had the good fortune of going to China 
I discovered there was an extraordinary evacuation of the paddy fields by a lot of the people who worked on the paddy fields into the towns with a stick across their back, standing outside shops to take washing machines, television machines, and other things into people's homes. And the paddy fields were beginning to be neglected. I, I got into a little bit of trouble by giving a lecture to the students at the, at the university <laughs> about don't lose your rice fields, don't lose your calligraphy. It's taken you two or three thousand years to establish these things. Think very seriously about it. And this I'm taking from Krishnamurti. I had the very good fortune of meeting dear Krishnamurti and he made this statement, which is really what I said at the beginning of the talk. We must find out for ourselves what is the relationship between nature and each one of us. We've got to find out for ourselves, not ask somebody else to do it, not listen to somebody else who says they know what should be done, but ask oneself. What is one's relationship to the green world? What is our relationship to flowers? What is our relationship to animals? And particularly, what is our relationship to other human beings? Which is critical. Next one over there. So, there are people who have made the discovery as to what a human being is and can do, and that is the Royal Highness Prince of Wales. And I'm very pleased to have been able to discuss some of his garden with him. This is the time walk at Highgrove, and he's set an extraordinary example. He gets vilified right, left, and center, and I can never understand quite why, but he's made such a remarkable job of, of his garden at Highgrove, both in terms of making it biodegradably natural and also introducing into the garden the elements of civilization which he considers to be apt. Next one here. So, going back to the issue of all life is water, this which I do actually, I wonder if anybody in the room is an expert on the difference between lotuses and the other flower that comes up and sits on the surface. Jeremy? The water lily. Is that a water lily or a lotus? That is a lotus. <laughs> I hoped it would be a lotus. The reason being it's come out of the water, isn't it? Because the water lily stays on the water surface. Hmm. But this image of the lotus, which is the most, I'm going to make the statement, anyway, the most held sacred flower through the whole of human history. From Egypt, ancient Egypt, right through to India, to um, Tibet, to Japan, to China. And one of the reasons being is that the lotus is a symbol of, if you like, human consciousness and the, the flowering of human consciousness. The stalk of that flower goes right down into the earth. As we said before, this surface you're looking at is the, is the dividing line of Socrates between those which are tangible things. Water is tangible, the earth, which the roots of that flower are tangible, it then breaks into the air, which is intangible. Air is the symbol of the, in, of the intellect. Air is the mind. Above the mind is the spirit, which is the lotus itself. What do you see the Buddha sitting on when you see a, most, most images of the Lord Buddha? He is sitting on the head of a lotus. Now that, how many people stop to say that's impossible? I don't know, but it is impossible. Obviously, a human body would crush a lotus 
even a big lotus. So it is a symbol of the transcendence of human consciousness as it goes up. And it's finally presenting itself and feeding from the light. Next one here. I'm now going into Hildegard of Bingen. I found these two wonderful little quotes. They're in my book. And here Hildegard says, You are the mighty way. Now the word way is, can be translated into Chinese as meaning bow. You are the mighty way. In which everything that was in the heavens, on the earth, or under the earth, is penetrated with connectedness. Is penetrated with relatedness. Incredible vision that Hildegard had, or realizing that everything is interpenetrating and everything is related to everything else. So the next part of the poem is, with a fiery spirit I transform it into a body to serve all the world. In that second part of that poem is an indication of what your life is for. Your life is a service to the world, if you can get to that point of understanding. It is a sacrifice and a service to the world itself. Service to all the other people and everything else like that. But those I find to be very inspiring um, declarations by Hildegard of Bingen, great Christian mystic. Next one here. So on this business of interrelatedness and connectedness, I'm putting in a little diagram of the Rudolf Steiner position as to how the green world, which is uh, symbolized here only by sketch by myself, um, symbolic of all the things that happen to a plant, and to show that there is a relationship, a part of the interpenetratedness. That which is below the ground is the moon in the rooting. The stalk that goes up from the roots here is the solar axis. The leaves that come off the plant are the mercurial part of the cosmos, the whole flower being a cosmos. The petals of the flower come from Venus. The pollen is related to Mars. Then we get to a later stage in the plant. The fruit is expansive in Jupiter and contractive in the seeds in Saturn. Now you can take this any way you like. Some people just simply will not touch Rudolf Steiner at all. Others realize what incredible penetrating vision he had but there is Steiner's version of a plant being a microcosm. Next one here. So, when we get to the <coughs> top part of that plant, the richness of the fruit, which is offered to mankind, one might say, in this wonderful stall by this lady, um, represents both Jupiter and Saturn together. Meaning by that, the Jupiterian aspect of that fruit is this expansiveness and its, its flesh and its juice and all these things, and the, the seeds within it, which are highly contractive, are the things which are going to grow the next season. So that brings us to the apple. The apple, which is so important in, Christian, in the Christian Gospels or the Christian mythology, whatever you like. Here is the top of the apple. Sorry, it's a bit dark. Brian, can you see it? <laughs> and here's a slice through the apple. So when we see a slice through the apple like this, this is the flesh, which is Jupiterian, by the Steiner. 
and here are the seeds which have contracted and I've simply drawn a five-pointed star and shown how these seeds are, seem to be controlled rather precisely by this five-pointed star. I've then drawn a second star using the same points here, a second star in curvature and where the curved five-pointed star crosses the straight there I've drawn a circle and that circle embraces the little tiny yellow points in the flesh of the apple which whenever, when you next cut an apple don't cut it downwards, cut it across and you'll see this little ten series of little ten yellow pieces. It's an extraordinary demonstration of, of not only the golden mean but the whole principle of proportion in a single apple. I didn't choose that apple uh, by cutting hundreds of them, that was the first apple I cut and photographed. Next one here. And now I'm moving to Chief Luther Standing Bear. Chief Luther Standing Bear, North American Indian from the Lakota Sioux tribe. And he made some wonderful statements, and this is one of them. The elders are wise. They knew that man's heart, away from nature, becomes hard. They knew that the lack of respect for growing, living things soon led to lack of respect for humans, too. I think, again, the Royal Highness Prince of Wales has made a very nice statement in his little tiny booklet, which is on sale here, on food, about exactly that response. It's taken a long time, and it still hasn't got quite through yet, to say the least. I've made some very good friends with some of the North American Indians where I've been there and keep up a correspondence with them um, and luckily the tribe that I know are doing very well but the general attitude still is pretty difficult for those people who owned or inhabited I should say rather than owned inhabited North America they don't have a very good time next one here so what I'm going to do on the basis of what Chief Luther Standing Bear says I'm going to take you through um, just in my book there's a whole series going through this is looking at the head or the bud of a marguerite or the bud of a, of a um, what I call a moon daisy that's why they were called moon daisies in Dorset where I was so that's the bud and the bud you see already is wrapped in a spiral and the first two fingers are coming out. There's one little finger coming out here and one little finger coming out here. Now, as that flower bursts open, the most extraordinary thing happens. Next one here. You see, what you're looking at now is the petals have all come out, but we're looking at the core, the yellow core, which actually is a, another collection of flowers. Each one of those little things in there is a flower in its own right. But can you see how it's spiraling downwards? Can you see the spirals in these? And it's going downwards. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. Because whenever you let the water out of your bath or your sink, next one, yeah, that's what the water does. But what's the flower doing? The flower is climbing up that. The flower is climbing up that in the same spirals. You can see the spirals, which are all part of the Fibonacci series, 
1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, etc. Life is climbing up that water. I'm making an outrageous statement here, so I'm very glad they're shouting me down, but <laughs> I'd just like you to think about it. There it is. And there it is. Now, from another book from Rudolf Steiner, I got this image next here. What you're looking at there, which is the vortex of water coming down, is this profile here, because it's dragging the air down with it. What is happening in the rest of the water is this extraordinary spiral form, which is constantly going around and almost nursing that water vortex. And that, um, for some reason, reminds me of Rupert Sheldrake's ideas about morphic resonance. But I'm going to go even further now, and it would be even more unreasonable. But I seem to have quite a nice quiet audience, so I can be unreasonable. <laughs> Next one here, please. What's that, Jeremy? No, I'm not really going to test you. Morning Glory. That's a Morning Glory bud, okay? You all know what Morning Glory is. They spread out in this beautiful five-fold pattern, sometimes bright blue, sometimes white. That's a bud of a Morning Glory. It's burst out from these little sepals here. There are five little sepals here, and that has burst out from it. But what I'm now going to show you is the shape of a candle flame, which we have one right there. Next one here. Those are the movements in the air, the different spirals in the air. Only one of these will actually bear the flame. A flame is only the shape it is because it's consuming the air. It's burning the air. Now, forgive me if I'm going too far, but as far as I'm concerned, the extraordinary thing about this ascension of light going upwards is extraordinarily similar, but that's all similar to the way in which that morning glory is spiraling its way up to the light as well. So, if I may just borrow this candle and see if I can get to it. That is the flame shape there. Ooh. Did, you see, did you see that, Brian? <laughs> okay. But, sorry? Health and safety. Health and safety. <laughs> nearly singed my moustache. Um, anyway, just, just, just to make these points that we have got to look at life in a totally different way than hard-nosed physicists look at life as if they're just physical behavior patterns. Life is op operating in an almost totally opposite way, which is why it's so miraculous. Next one, next one here. This is the Marguerite Sidon, that flower I showed opening, and all the little, little yellow pieces in the middle, which were in the Fibonacci spiral, have now begun to flower. And I looked at this, and I took this photograph, and I thought to myself, wouldn't it be nice if I looked on top of that and it showed me some significance, which of course no doubt I was expecting it, but here we go. What happened was this circle here, the outer circle, is the outer limits of the petals. And this circle here exactly relates to the yellow, little yellow flowers in the middle. Next one here, we'll show you that. Detail. 
There is the flower. I've drawn, I've drawn a circle as near as I possibly could to, with accuracy, going out a little bit in some places and going in a little bit in other places. Drawn a five-pointed star, starting up there, one, two, three, four, five. And then that circle, which you see there, is going from here, where the petals begin to open properly. Then if you do another circle, which is tangenting the inner pentagon, that gives you exactly, exactly that yellow centerpiece. Now what that actually means is something quite, well, surprising but important. And that is that if we count these little fellows in here, they give us um, an extraordinary rule or law. And that is the rule or law which was discovered by Fibonacci. That is, if you count the number of those little yellow flowers on this spiral here, there are 13 of them. If you then go in the opposite direction and count the little flowers in that spiral, there are eight of them. Relationship of eight to 13 is what's called a Fibonacci relationship. And it is a series of numerical relationships which approach closer and closer to the golden mean. But what we know from seeing there, this is the golden mean, 1 to 1.618. This is the golden mean squared down here, 2 to 618. That 618 goes on forever. Nobody has come to any limits to how far you can take the golden number. It literally goes on as far as you tell you've burnt up all the electricity in your computer. So, this flower is showing you an approach to the golden mean in its spirals and a precise golden mean relationship in the relationship between the yellow circle and the petals. Now I find that remarkable. Doesn't matter if you don't, chaps, but I do. <laughs> okay, um, let's have the next one here. Because of this Fibonacci relationship here of 13 to 8, I thought it'd be quite good as a reminder to say there's got to be something in here to do with the intrinsic nature of beauty. This is the piano keyboard. Eight white notes with a code on them and five black notes with the sharp values on them. And again, the Fibonacci series can be seen as one, one, two, three, five, eight, then the whole set, 13. The Fibonacci series is what we find beautiful to the ear. I was hoping that dear Stephen's daughter was going to sing for me at this point, but she is not able to be here, so I'm sorry. Um, if you happen to be good at Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, when you get home and you're lying in the bath and nobody can hear you, you're singing in a pentatonic scale here. Now what does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, the whole, whole point that we're saying here is that the musical notes increase by golden mean, or towards the golden mean. It's what's called in, in India the Upanishad. It's, it's approaching, it's a near approach. But when you get to here, um, you get the eight notes, put the eight notes together with the black notes, we get the 13 notes. Now, after that, in the, 
Indian scale, there's a thing called a Shruti scale. The Shruti scale goes up to 21. So it continues because they have um, quarter notes and half notes that we find very difficult to hear. So the whole business of 8 to 13, which is 8 to the whole lot, which is 13, is both visually and orally aesthetically pleasing. Next one here. Or oh, the next one there, I think it should be. Yeah, I'll put them both on. Now just in case, just in case there's anybody in the room who doesn't know who Sir Jagadis Chunderbose is, they should be ashamed of themselves to start with, but then I mustn't press too hard. Sir Jagadis Chunderbose in the 1930s I wouldn't say broke his heart, but he nearly broke his heart trying to get the scientific community in London to accept the fact that he had arranged instrumentation and proven that flowers respond to human emotion. Extraordinary thing. Um, people used to know about it, funny enough, in the 1960s when music was played to flowers and they behaved in different ways, but it's somehow gone quite out of fashion. So what so Jagadish Chundabo said was, there is no life reaction and even the highest animal which has not been foreshadowed in the life of the plant. The plant is literally an ancestor for the animal and we are animals, are ancestors to ourselves, presumably. Next one here. Now, not many people will particularly be aware of what those are. They're on the underside of every green leaf. Every green leaf has one or more of these little shapes, and they're called stomata. Those stomata prefigure nostrils, mouth, eyes. They take in light, they take in water and, and, and release water, and they also take in breath the most extraordinary instrument. They're all vesicas, as far as the geometrician's concerned. They're vesicle forms. And these two cells, either side, either swell or relax to let the light or the air or the liquid through. So this is part of what Sir Chunderbose was talking about, the prefiguring in the plant of later animal forms. Next one here. Again, this is... I'm sorry not to have put his name on it, but this is by Krishnamurti again. Listen, life is one. It has no beginning and no end. The source and goal live in your heart. This is drawing a very quick and immediate attention to the fact that you don't know that there's anything outside yourself. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Okay, I can kick this and hurt my foot and say, oh, I know there's something outside myself. But strictly speaking, once we take something in, is it within us or is it still without us? And when you're talking about the heart, in this particular case, you're talking about the soul. And according to Plato, the soul is and cannot be anything else but immortal. Next one here. That's just to decorate the screen, folks. <laughs> Next one here. Now, just to prompt you about thinking that you know everything. 
about life. So in my book, I've taken a lot of, paid a lot of attention to marbles. And the reason I've paid a lot of attention to marbles is the ancient Greeks, that is Euclid, Aristotle, Plato, and all the mathematicians, they did not have written numbers. They restrained themselves from having separate symbol for numbers. What they did is they had marbles, and they did their mathematics with marbles. And one of the great wisdoms of doing this was the marble keeps arithmetic and geometry integral. They're not separate. If you have marbles, you have numbers, and you have geometry together. And in a way, this is a demonstration of it. Obviously, a point, a line, a plane, and if one of these went on top, it would be a solid. But the other thing, which is, to me, fascinating, just the other day, I was reading The Theology of Plato, which is an extraordinary book by Proclus. And in The Theology of Plato, it said, of the highest intellectual triad, or the highest triad of the intelligible sphere, is beauty. And beauty gives birth to all symmetry. Beauty gives birth to all symmetry. So these are pebbles placed in symmetrical order. Two-fold, three-fold, four-fold, five-fold, six-fold, seven, eight, nine, ten. When we get to ten, we can put a triangle on the inside as well. So in my book, I've spent, meant, spent a lot of time doing an exploration of the symmetry of flowers. A, because the ancients believed that symmetry came from the highest possible realm, and B, because, most surprisingly, on quite a few of the flowers I've got in my garden at home, three stalks will come up, and on those three stalks will be three different flowers, sorry, three flowers which are the same flower, but with different numbers of petals. And I haven't heard anybody from the genetic world explain to me who, within the plant, makes the decision it should be fourfold, fivefold, or sixfold. There's quite a few cases in my book, if anybody wants to check me. I'll just go through those very briefly, because I'm coming near to the end of this talk now. Next one here, very simple but powerful and um, dramatic. But I, I can't help wondering what effect these symmetries have on bees and butterflies. How can we be so strong as to say, oh, they don't know anything about mathematics or numbers and things like that? But um, it's not quite true. I mean, even Jeremy knows that bumblebees and ordinary bees choose different flowers, don't they? <laughs> But here, you see, if you put your compass point there and swung your pencil, you'll probably pretty much hit all the points on that flower that you wanted to. So there's a six-fold flower. Next one. That's a seven-fold flower, a primula. Seven. Not as precise as the six, but nevertheless quite clearly seven. There are seven in here, and there are seven out there. So there's a primula being seven. Next time you go home, look at your bunch of primulas which are growing in your garden, because I know everybody in here is bound to have gardens, and look at your primulas and count how many petals and how many patterns are in the middle. You'll find it'll go from five to six to seven to eight. And they'll often come from the same plant. And I have no idea myself, or I haven't heard any explanation how that's so. Next one is a bit of an advertisement, forgive me folks, but is a tulip making an eight. The cover of my book is based on my photographing inside a tulip, and here is an eight-fold symmetry. Four here and eight around it. 
Next one here is another statement, a very important statement as far as I'm concerned, by Mircea Eliade. Mircea Eliade, great authority on universal religion and religions. The experience of a radically desacralized nature is a recent phenomenon. Moreover, it is an experience accessible only to a minority of modern societies, especially scientists. Now, Mercier Lard wrote that some time back, and I hate, sad, sad to say, almost the overwhelming wave of propaganda coming from the scientific world has captured more and more of the general public's imagination, which is really quite dangerous and tra tragic as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, I'm going to put an advertisement on the more here now, for the school from which our dear projector, projectionist at the back there, this is a very beautiful flower stained glass window in the Islamic manner by Simon who's handling the projector and in it, um, Simon tells me he didn't count these petals and he did it, fours, sixes, fives, thirteen Fibonacci number, six again and seven at the top there. But that is what we do at the Princess School of Traditional Arts. We actually deal with, we deal reverentially with Islamic art particularly, but all the different kinds of traditional arts on the basis that they are always, always intrinsically in tune with nature in its, in its truly um, spiritual sense. So the next one I'm going to show you here is Rupert Sheldrake's book, which is on sale. And Rupert has done, a, in my view, done an extremely good job in that book, um, probably much to the anger of a great deal of scientists, but it doesn't matter at all. Um, he's pointed out with ten, a sequence of ten chapters where contemporary science has literally got it wrong if I may be so strong. I think that's right, isn't it? <laughs> He's got it wrong. But the whole point about that is that he does it very, very well and very beautifully. And at the end of each of these ten chapters, which are picking on dogmas of contemporary science, evolution being one of them, and at the end, giving a little summary, do you really believe your dog is a machine? And of course, oh, of course not, of course not. But... Too many contemporary scientists are quite happy to say that's all it is. It's a bundle of conditioned reflexes, therefore machine. Anyway, from reading that, I think it's also anybody who wants to really get into this whole business of what is wrong with science, why has science gone off in such a, an absurd direction and start writing books called The Selfish Gene. Gracious me. There is another book here which I would offer and ask people to consider reading and that is The Need for a Sacred Science by Said Hussein Nasr, a very, very good old friend of mine and, um, in America. And that is a very beautiful comparison or, or companion to Rupert's book there. Well, you've been a very good lot, and I see somebody has to leave because they've got to catch a train. I'm finished, so you're very lucky. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have time for that.
thank you again for a wonderful, wonderful Can, can I make a remark yes. about that? Bless you, Jeremy. Um, when people ask questions, forgive me, but usually they're asking a question which is very important to themselves. And what I like to say to people when they've been through a sort of session like this is, ask yourself that question. And keep asking yourself that question, because the things which are bugging you now, when you wake up in the morning, some of them will be quite solved. But, I mean, I can give an answer. What's the point of me giving an answer? I'm not an authority. Ask yourself. Your authority is in yourself. Sorry, this is... Is that all right? That's a brilliant answer to all your questions. <laughs>